0: Welcome to the Palmwood Podcast, part of the teaching ministry of Palmwood Church in Oviedo, Florida, where we love God extravagantly, love people with humility, and mentor others to do the same. Here's Pastor John with an introduction for this week's message. Thank you, David. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Palmwood Podcast. Resurrection Sunday, it's the Christian's highest holy day. And what it celebrates is the single pivotal moment in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection that proves Jesus is the Messiah. It's the resurrection that finally defeats Satan and his plans to keep the world in sin bondage. The resurrection changes everything. This week's message, which is part of our series, Know What You Believe, was recorded on Easter Sunday, 2020, as the Palmwood Church gathered virtually to celebrate the Savior. Of course, our topic is the Resurrection. May the Holy Spirit speak to you deeply in today's podcast. Scripture reading today is taken from Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 36. I'm reading from the New International version. Men of Israel, Peter says, listen to this. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. Keep that in mind. And foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, speaking of King David here, said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. "...because you have not abandoned me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence." Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, was buried, and is in his tomb to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. And those that were around, many of them actually had seen him, so it was a true fact. both Lord and Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, those of you who know me, you know that uh, I am a big Tolkien and Lewis fan. I love Lord of the Rings. Our family has probably seen Lord of the Rings enough that we literally could quote it line by line through the whole trilogy if we sat down and and watched it. Um, We love Tolkien. I love Lewis. C.S. Lewis was actually my first major book discovery as a kid. Uh, Hated to read. Didn't want to do any of it. And then I discovered the Chronicles of Narnia. And I love that Lewis, who I've probably read most of his books now, if not all of them, But they're very deep. Some of them are are very theologically rich. I love that Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, wanted to communicate to children, and frankly to adults that need things on a child's level, um, some of the deep truths about the faith. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis calls upon his primary character in that series Aslan the Lion, who is a type of Jesus Christ in that book, to do something incredible. The White Witch, who is a type of Satan in the book, uh, she leads one of the four Pevensey children, the four main characters in the story, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She leads one of the brothers to actually betray his brothers and sisters and all of Narnia. And because of the betrayal now, according to the laws of Narnia, he belongs to her, the evil witch. And as the story unfolds, we learn that Aslan knows a way to redeem Edmund, the the son, the the child that has has gone, uh, has done treachery. Aslan gives his life on behalf of Edmund. And as the story unfolds, he makes the deal with the witch. The witch releases Edmund, and the next scene is just horrible. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It was displayed very well that that the white witch takes Aslan, and she is surrounded by all of her Hags and ogres and, and all of those that are evil incarnate and, and Aslan goes willingly into the midst of them and he is beaten and he is, he is bound so he cannot move. And the first thing they do is they disgrace him by shaving off his mane. And then they lay him on this sacrificial altar called the stone table. And it's, it's as old as Narnia. And according to the, the magic, the deep magic, the laws of Narnia, he must be sacrificed on that table to set Edmund free. And as the knife comes down in the hands of the white witch and, and plunges into Aslan killing him, the two Pevensey girls, Lucy and Susan, watch on in horror as Aslan dies. And as Aslan breathes his last, the whole evil company surrounding him puts up a great shout and celebration that he's finally gone. And then the White Witch leads them off to do battle so she can conquer Narnia. As they're leaving, Lucy and Susan go running back. And they they caress Aslan's dead body. And they're weeping and they're sad. And they stay there all through the night until morning. And they decide they have to go back and tell their oldest brother, Peter, who's now become the high king of Narnia, what has happened. And as they begin walking away, with their backs turned, behind them they hear an enormous crack. And they turn around in shock, and Aslan's body is gone, and the stone table is broken in two. They go running back to see what has happened. And as they get to the stone table, the sun comes over the horizon and there is Aslan. Alive. And here is what Aslan says. If the witch understood the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. For when a willing victim who has committed no treachery, dies in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself will turn backwards. What a beautiful illustration of what we celebrate today. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, it is so easy for us to fall into a pattern where we get religious on Christmas and Easter, we get religious around Mother's Day and, and some of these bigger holidays, but then we let the actions of our faith wane at other times. Father, my prayer today for me and and everybody that's a part of this worshiping community right now, that we would be convicted by your Holy Spirit, that celebrating the resurrection is an everyday celebration, and that our worship and gratitude should not be seasonal, but be perpetual. Perpetual at the incredible news that Jesus did indeed die. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was disgraced. He was stripped naked before he was nailed to that cross. He was put on display at the crossroads so everybody would see him. He died. He was taken down and gently laid in a grave. But he didn't stay there. And because he rose again, those of us who have faith in him today on Resurrection Sunday and every day can have assurance that we too will live for all eternity in fellowship and a covenant relationship with God because of the sacrifice of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ our Savior. Somehow, Father, today take this message that comes from a human mind, mix it with your wonderful and eternal word, and may it go deep to our hearts today, Jesus, that we may never forget the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. We ask this in his victorious name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you, the resurrection is not a New Testament thing. People think the resurrection just came about in the time of Jesus, but really it was God's plan all along. It's been God's plan from the beginning. We are currently in a series, for those that may be visiting with us, where we're trying to really understand and articulate and have convictions of what we say we believe. It's one thing for Christians to to espouse doctrine and theology and what we say we believe. It's another thing for us to completely base our lives upon it. So to that end, we, we are right now going through a series that is modeled after the Apostles' Creed, the great statement of faith. We're going through it line by line, and we're learning what the Scripture says so that we can get to a place where that really is a deep conviction in our very souls we we base our life upon it we've taken today's statement which is on the third day he that is jesus rose again from the dead the resurrection of jesus was god's plan from the beginning it has literally been a part of his whole sequence of events He's, he's known about it he's seen it he has planned it that through Jesus, his people would be set free. And as we'll see today, there are indications of the work of Jesus already immediately in Genesis chapter 3, where we learn about humanity's sin. Right after the first man and woman sinned against God and were sent out of the garden, immediately there is an indication of what Jesus would do. So we see that it dates all the way back to the very beginning, there is a clear indication of the resurrection of the dead throughout the Old Testament. You can see it in all of those various books and uh, uh, verses that I've I've listed in the notes. By the time Jesus is born, there is already a very well developed theology of the resurrection among the Jewish leadership. In fact there was a theological battle by the time Jesus comes on the scene. There's a theological battle over the resurrection between the two largest Jewish sects. There were the Sadducees who denied any resurrection whatsoever. And then there were the Pharisees who not only uh, believed in the resurrection, but they openly taught it to their disciples. Many Christians... For instance, have relied upon Isaiah 26 for comfort in difficult times. Uh, it's a fairly familiar passage. Um, if I'm just, I'll read a couple of verses to you. And, and those of you that have been there, you'll know it. it says, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is set steadfast, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. And so that, there's this this great foundation of faith that comes out of this verse when people are having difficult times like we're doing right now with the coronavirus but few people realize that the prophet ends this psalm of praise in his prophecy with a verse about resurrection let me read to you isaiah 26 verse 19 But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You will dwell in the dust. Wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So all the way back in the time of Isaiah, there is a reference to the resurrection. In the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 37, the the whole prophetic vision of the valley of dry bones is a resurrection story, the whole thing. Daniel, the prophet who went to the lion's den, receives a word from God about the end times when everything is going to come to a close, and he describes two different resurrections. Those that are faithful to God are raised to everlasting life, and the rest are raised to everlasting shame and contempt. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 4. Or how about Job? Job, who was a contemporary of Abraham, people don't realize because his book is in the middle of the Old Testament, they think that chronologically he comes in the middle of the story. He doesn't. He comes way at the beginning of the story. Job lived in the time of Abraham. As Job is enduring all of his trials and his tribulations, he's watched his his children killed and, 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 and he's lost all of his worldly possessions and his friends are no help. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Job. It's a depressing story. In the middle of this story, here's what Job says. He says, Oh, that my words were recorded, or that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or they were engraved in rock forever. I know, says Job, my Redeemer lives, that in the end he will stand upon the earth after my skin has been destroyed yet, yet in my flesh I will see God, I myself will see him, with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. He's talking about his own resurrection. You'll see in the notes that there are many other places in the Old Testament where we get glimpses of the resurrection. And and frankly, the list in the notes is not a complete list. These became the basis of the Pharisees' theology on the topic, a theology that Jesus would not only adopt as his own, but he would be the very first one to fulfill it. From the moment that humanity sinned, God had a complete plan for redemption. He already had it worked out. In Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman sinned. They they yield to Satan, the tempter, and literally turn their backs on God. It's a a rebellion. It's a horrible rebellion. It, It sent all of humanity into sin. And as God comes back to the garden immediately following this betrayal and is walking in the garden, he has this conversation with the man and the woman, and it's revealed what they have done. Immediately, God tells them what life is going to be like because they've done this, but in the middle of that explanation, he looks right at satan and he says the offspring of the woman will crush your head friends when i was in seminary my hebrew professor when i was learning the hebrew language was a messianic rabbi and he told us in class and and this is just wowing to me he told us in class this is the only place in all of ancient Hebrew literature where the word for male seed, translated offspring in the NIV, is attributed to a woman, not a man. He said, that's a glimpse of the virgin birth immediately following the sin of humanity. God's had this plan from the very beginning. You see... The payment for sin is made in Jesus' death. But, listen, the victory over Satan is established once and for all and forever in the resurrection from the dead. One of the most compelling Old Testament proofs for the resurrection is found in Isaiah 53. By the way, there's a lot of Jewish communities today that do not read Isaiah 53. They skip from 52 to 54 because Isaiah 53 so clearly points to Jesus and they don't believe that he is their Messiah, and so they just skip that part. (laughs) But it's an incredible passage. I actually would, would recommend on this Resurrection Sunday, maybe one of the things that you can do is read that chapter. It's very profound. Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah prophesied. Listen to verses 8 through 11 in this prophecy as Isaiah speaks of his suffering servant. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, which is exactly what happened, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, listen, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He's talking about the resurrection of the suffering servant of Jesus, the Messiah. David prophetically writes about the resurrection of one of his own descendants, Jesus, in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And Peter, as he's preaching on the very first day when the church is born, at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it was our our passage this morning, Peter refers back twice, two different times, to David's psalm in talking about what Jesus has accomplished. Take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 31. Way, way before Jesus was born. God's incredible plan, including the resurrection, was already established. And the great work of Christ, the Messiah, would be accomplished as He rises from the dead. So let's look at the resurrection itself. While well, I was doing study on this this past week, there was one day I, I just, I personally got a belly laugh as I was sequestered in my study. Preparing for the message, because I went to one of my old favorites, theologian Millard Erickson, and just reading about his unpacking of the resurrection and its meaning, meaning. and he says this, I just, I think this is, it just gives me joy. Yeah, let's put it that way. The resurrection is particularly significant for inflicting death was the worst thing that sin and the powers of sin could do to Christ in the inability of death to hold him is symbolized the totality of his victory. What more, I love this, what more can the forces of evil do if someone whom they have killed does not stay dead? (laughs) Isn't that great? I love that statement. Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the grave. And, And we have the testimony that he was not only seen by his disciples, by the apostles, but by hundreds of people. There are records outside of the Bible that tell us this. In fact, one time, shortly after his resurrection, he was seen by over 500 people at one time. Incredible! The resurrection was the heart of the early Christian message. And it must be the heart of our ministry and our message today as well. The resurrection proves so many things, friends. The resurrection proves the rule and reign, the kingdom of our triune God. There is no more powerful demonstration of the rule and reign of God than the resurrection itself. God the Son, Jesus He tells us while he's still alive and walking the earth that no one takes his life from him. He gives it up of his own accord. And then he follows that statement. That's John chapter 10, verse 18, I think. He follows that statement by saying, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up again. God the Father raised him. It was impossible for death to keep him in the grave. We read that in Acts 2, today. God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And this comes from Romans 8, verse 11. And the promise that Paul, that Paul tells us in his, his letter to Rome is that for all those who believe in Jesus, the Spirit will do the same for us one day, that we also will be raised from the dead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit together are involved in the resurrection of Christ, proving their rule and reign. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Think back to last week's message, if you were with us, because that was, we talked about Jesus being the Son of God. Last week's message, we said that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the one and only begotten. Son of God, the rest of us are adopted, and we said that Jesus is Lord. He's master over everything. All of these are confirmed by the resurrection. Listen to Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, you'll say, well, today will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then Jesus got up and walked away from (laughs) them. The sign of Jonah is a direct reference to the Resurrection. If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. He was in the belly of that fish for how long? Three days. And then the Lord caused the fish to spit him up on dry land where he could go into Nineveh and do his redemptive ministry. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. The resurrection validates all of Jesus' teaching and promises, and in particular, what he taught about the resurrection. Do you realize that Jesus teaches about his own resurrection in several different places? For example, in your own time, you might look at Matthew 12, verse 40, Matthew 17, verse 23, Matthew 20, verse 19. Jesus explains to his disciples about the suffering that he's going to have to go through way before he actually starts suffering. Matthew 16, 21. After his transfiguration, that moment where Jesus, while he was still walking the earth, was completely glorified and looked like himself, his heavenly self, before Peter, James, and John. As they're walking down the side of the mountain, going back to where the rest of the disciples are, he tells the three of them not to tell anybody about what they've seen until after the resurrection, Matthew 17, verse 9. During the Last Supper, which we just commemorated through communion, he tells his disciples the things that they need to do after he is raised from the dead, Matthew 26, verse 32. Jesus even hinted to his resurrection to the religious leaders, and they did not like that one bit, John 2, verse 19. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the very source of all life. In John chapter 1, we've talked about this the last few weeks as well, but in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it, it talks about how Jesus was with God in the beginning, how everything that was created was created through Jesus. Jesus is the word. When, If you go back to Genesis to the creation account, it says, and God said, every time God said it was Jesus, the word that went out and did all of the creating. And then John goes on to say that he is the life. He is the light of life. He he is the very source of all that. One commentator puts it this way, Jesus does more than give life. Jesus is life. And that's why death has absolutely no power over him. The resurrection validates life in this upside-down kingdom. Now... Many of you who are guests today and are watching this that haven't been with us at Palmwood Church for the last few years, you won't remember this, but those that are here in the room and and are part of the Palmwood family distributed out there, we did a series a few years ago on the kingdom of God, and we talked about the upside-down kingdom. You know, there's a statement in Acts where they say about Jesus' disciples that they're turning the world upside down. And what I said during that series is it wasn't that they were turning the world upside down, it's that the world is already upside down because of sin. They're turning it right side up. Jesus comes in to make things back the way they're supposed to be. But it doesn't make sense to the people who live in the world today. I mean, Jesus teaches things like whoever wants to find his life has to lose it. Matthew 10, 38 and 39. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. (laughs) Matthew 16, 24 through 28. The greatest among you must be your servant. That sounds backwards. Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. The first will be last. In another place he says, the last will be first. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. Our world doesn't operate this way. And yet... The greatest kingdom in all eternity is a kingdom that is validated by sacrifice, servanthood, and humility. Not wealth, authority, and power. Somebody needs to tell Washington D.C. The resurrection proves the redemption and coming renewal for all of us as Christ's followers. Just like in Daniel's prophecy, In the Old Testament, Jesus tells us that there will be two resurrections. Those who are good will rise unto life, and those who are evil will rise unto condemnation. The resurrection of Jesus redeems us. The resurrection launches a renewal of all things. The resurrection gives us real victory over sin once and for all. Amen? The resurrection makes our justification possible. Justification, fancy word. Let's talk about what it means. We are so cleansed by Jesus that God the Father looks at us and declares us fully righteous in Christ. No more sin. On the third day, he arose again from the dead. Ah, praise Jesus. It is critical that we both understand and believe in this truth. Absolutely essential. We need to base our whole life upon it. The resurrection of Jesus is not just some kind of a nice, warm, fuzzy bedtime story. It is the central truth of the entire Christian faith, and it is the reason that any one of us can be redeemed. Let's pray. Father make these words echo in our minds and our hearts today and every day bringing us back to this truth over and over and over again so this becomes our new starting point he is risen he is risen indeed hallelujah oh Holy Spirit Make it so in our hearts. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Palmwood Podcast. If you'd like more information about Palmwood Church and its ministry, see our website at palmwoodchurch.com. Have a blessed day.